Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. everyone and welcome to the forecast fest i'm kate baldwin here with my colleagues john avalon hello and harry enton hello me my homies and my favorite of all times <laughs> another big debate came and went and that means it is time for the post game friends we might not call winners and losers because i feel like that's mean even though, <laughs> even call though, me the loser even though i'm not that nice but we surely do have some standouts from the debate and welcome to front runner status elizabeth warren we're also going to be focusing in on the bellwether of all bellwethers, Ohio, and ask, I would say, something of a provocative question. Mm. Is it really still the bellwether that it once was? <sighs> Ooh, the Very provocative. I know. Wow. I'm so crazy. Wow. And after last week's historic town hall focused on issues impacting the LGBTQ community, let's talk about what the community means as a voting block and much, much more. But first, before we get to all that, let's get to the forecast. Harry? Well, shalom, Kate. Shalom, John. Uh, look, uh, you know, Chris, Liz, and I do these power rankings. I'm going to kind of just buzz through them, but I think there are a few notable things here. Uh, Tom Steyer stays at number 10, as he was last time. Beto O'Rourke is at number 9. He is down three slots, so a major drop there. Andrew Yang stays at 8. Amy Klobuchar is at 7. She's up two slots. At number 6 is Cory Booker. He's up one slot. Then we basically have the same with Harris at five, Buttigieg at four, Sanders at three. But we have dropped Biden down from number one, where he has been pretty much, I think, for every single taping that we've done. We've dropped him down from one to two, and we've bumped Elizabeth Warren, the senior senator from the great state of Massachusetts, up to number one. Though I personally think that Biden and Warren are co-front runners, um, and, but that Beto O'Rourke's campaign kind of seems a little— little cook to me at this particular Tostada, point. Tostada, as little, they might say in El Paso. As they might say down by the border. So that's basically, you know, where things sort of stand. And I, I think that the major movement, obviously, of Elizabeth Warren sort of breaking through. And I think as we'll get in about the debate, uh, clearly is a, if nothing else, a co-front runner at this point. Are we seeing Klobuchar momentum? Uh, I've been waiting for Klobuchar momentum. Klobomentum? Klobomentum. She's the Klobo. Could you imagine that's, if she was like, I am Klobo. Is that? From Minnesota. I think that's a cool nickname. I think it would be really cool. I think it reminds me of like an 80s horror nicknames. flick, like, like Cujo. <laughs> that was scary. <laughs> that way. Yes, it was. I, I, I thought it. it was going to be like a Transformer. You know, I am Klobo here in she, Iowa. Way, she had a great debate. Yes. We're, don't jump, jump the uh, gun. Just, uh, don't jump. But, but no, so on Klobuchar, I, I, yeah. she said what? She's up two? She's up two. How much? Does the last debate impact that? Uh, no, I, I I mean, this was even thinking before then. I think, you know, obviously. Klobomentum. There is some Klobomentum going on. Stop. Everyone's the, just turning off their podcast right now. The Klobo bo- boomerang. Um, look. The Klobo Meringue. Yeah, there you okay, go. Okay, I took it too far. L- look, um, 
that debate helped, but I think what we're really seeing right now is this field is going to shrink considerably going into the next debate where there may only be eight or nine slots that you know people actually make the debate stage. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Beryl Rourke's campaign is just going completely back backwards. And so we really just had no choice but to drop him down into the you know high single digits nearly off the list versus at least I, I think you can paint a scenario in which Amy Klobuchar is the nominee. There is some scenario where it makes sense, where she goes into Iowa, she wins there, and then kind of starts some some momentum. Versus better work is not really even competing in the early states. Where is this coming from? He's raising no money. His support seems to be dropping and dropping and dropping. He's supposedly running a national campaign, and yet his national numbers are the worst they have been since he declared his uh, run for the presidency. Well, I'm glad you mentioned money. <laughs> exactly. Because... Uh, you want to find the truth, follow the money, and we do have the reporting deadlines. And the big one for me, which I think justifies, I think a pretty big deal that Biden's no longer in the top spot in the power ranking, yeah. is his numbers, his cash on hand is not good. No bueno, around eight and a half. That is well below Bernie Sanders. That is well below Pete Buttigieg. That is below Kamala Harris. And he's burning through a ton as well. This is this gets back to what had been the story around Joe Biden and past candidacies, right? Past times he ran, he did not. He was not great at fundraising. Right. In addition to, he didn't have great candidacies the last times he ran. <laughs> but that was part of it. And this, I mean, I don't know. I guess you, there could be an argument of like it's a fluke. I don't know. I, I, look, it seems to be about two things, right? One is his burn rate's very high. He's running a front-runner campaign with a lot of expensive consultants. Two, his, his big-dollar donors, unlike Warren, unlike uh, Sanders. And that creates a real problem because you run through those folks real fast, and you can't go back can't to them for more back. cash. Right? Well, let's put it this way. If he doesn't win in one of the first Fort Raleigh states, he is going to almost certainly – be in major, well, he would be in major trouble no matter what, but I would even There won't argue, be any more money for Right, him there won't be any more money. He needs to Isn't win that a early. Captain Obvious statement? No, but, he, but I guess what I'm saying is if you, he, if you say it with enough energy, geez, it then, sounds then it's It sounds intelligent. Uh, look, but I guess it's not like this. He would end up like with a Bernie Sanders candidacy from 2016 where he will just drag it out. He needs to win early. If he wins early, he might be able to raise more dough. If he doesn't win early, the dough dries up and that campaign is Look, kaput. Sanders can drag it out all he wants yeah. with the kind of cash on hand that he has. And with 30 plus million bucks. Yeah, no, he, he's got the money. He also scored some high-level endorsements from, you know, what is known as the squad, uh, which which I think gives him a lot of a left-wing cred. Here's the thing. I think, you know, what a lot of centrists uh, looking at the field say is the polls show that Biden is actually the most competitive candidate. But mm-hmm. if he can't raise the money and there's a lack of enthusiasm, that presents a real problem, not just for Biden's campaign, but for the center lane and potentially with Democrats dislodging Trump from the White House. So let's go from that to let's talk about the debate. So essentially, it's welcome to the big leagues, Elizabeth Warren, not in terms of that she hasn't been a top tier candidate, yep. but it felt like she was the top tier candidate in the debate. I mean, because she looked like she had a jacket on, not body armor, but I hope she had body armor on because it, she was taking incoming from everywhere. It was Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. Don't I'm not going to do the nickname now. Um, Harris, <laughs> O'Rourke, Tulsi Gabbard kept trying to ask her questions from uh. the debate stage. Joe Biden as well. Um, she was facing serious heat really for the first time at this debate uh, in terms of on the debate stage. And it was all from Medicare for all to taxing the wealthy to having a plan for everything but not getting down to any specifics on it. And that's just one headline from 
from the night. Where do you guys want to begin with the debate? I mean, what did folks learn from those clashes between Elizabeth Warren defending herself and her taking and coming from all sides of the debate? I I mean, I I learned a lot of things, not the least of which was, you know, look, she didn't collapse. I'm not going to say it was her greatest debate of all time, but, you know, it wasn't a disaster, which is really what you want to try to avoid if you're a front runner candidate. Um, I think that there's a real question in my mind about why were people going after Elizabeth Warren. And I think the main sort of a talking point was they view her now as the front runner. They're trying to distinguish themselves as the moderate alternative to her, so on and so forth. I actually look at it in a slightly different way. The way that I look at it, especially given that the highest profile sort of matchup fight was between Buttigieg and Warren, is that their supporters look kind of really similar. There's a real Iowa dynamic going on here where Buttigieg is basically running third in the average of polls in Iowa, and his supporters look most like Elizabeth Warren's, not actually Joe Biden's. And so I think there's kind of this undercurrent there where he's trying to cut her off at the pass in Iowa in order to turn the campaign Well, let, let, let's dig a little deeper in terms of what you really mean. What you mean is that they both have a base in white educated, wealthy voters, whereas Biden's got more appeal with middle-class, blue-collar voters. Um, And that's a really important distinction. We tend to view everything through an ideological prism. Um, But but I do think at the end of the day, Buttigieg and other folks scored some points by saying, hey, you're pushing for Medicare for all. How are you going to pay for it? Moderators came back. Give me a yes or no. Will you raise taxes on the middle class? And she wouldn't answer. Instead, she defaulted to the their costs will lower, which basically means, yes, I'm going to raise their taxes, but they will end up paying less out of pocket than they do for their current medical expenses. On that one especially, why won't she answer? This is the fourth round of debates where she's asked directly and she comes up with the same Answer. I mean, is it where are the numbers on Medicare for all? Is that or on taxes, I guess? I mean, what, what do you see that's well, I, I, stopping her from giving a yes or no? I answer? think that the yes or no is she does not want to get caught on tape saying I'm going to raise taxes. She Bernie doesn't Sanders want, has no problem saying well, that's because Bernie Sanders isn't Bernie Sanders doesn't care. I, I think he wants to just be who he is while Elizabeth Warren is trying to ensure the more, uh, say, establishment folks in the Democratic Party that she wouldn't get beaten like a drum in the general election against Trump, as you know, Joe Biden likes to say. Um, and that to me is the big thing that's going on, because if you look at the Medicare for all polling, yes, Medicare for all doesn't poll as well as the public option does. But still, no matter what poll you look at, 60 to 70 percent of Democrats say they'd be basically fine with Medicare for all, even if they prefer the public option. So this, I think, is more about trying to ensure voters that she can have a general election message. But at the end of the day, it also comes across as that she's being somewhat evasive. Because she is. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, that's why. And, And by the way, you know, no less than Ohio senator, populist, Democrat, hero, Sherrod Brown said Democrats would be idiotic to go into the general election backing Medicare for all single payer. And this is a guy who is about as blue collar populist as you get. And he's saying, don't give Republicans that weapon. Build on the ACA. It's smart policy. It's popular policy among Democrats and the general electorate. But instead, she is doubling down on her Medicare for all, her Bernie comparisons consistently over the debate. And that is leading with your chin heading into a general election. I mean, a lot of the moments, the bigger moments, Joe Biden needed to answer for the him finding himself and his son at the center of this, Mm -hmm. what the president's been trying to push with the Ukraine corruption efforts 
not based in fact. There is no evidence of any wrongdoing. But he was going to answer for it because his Hunter Biden had spoken out just the, the, the morning of the debate. Beyond that moment, the big moments didn't really involve Joe Biden. And I'm kind of wondering, OK, if the you know, there's always the strategy of do no harm when you go into the debate. Is that a win or a loss for him? I mean, look, until until the last couple of weeks, we haven't seen the debates have much of an impact on people standing in the polls, except oh, you know where I'm going. <laughs> they when they get it with the Biden boom ring, they attack Biden <laughs> and then they tend to collapse in the polls. That's been the only pattern we've seen. OK, I hadn't even thought about this until you just said that. Go on. Is there going to be a. It doesn't sound as fancy. A Warren boomerang? Warren like, is there going to be backlash against people going after Warren? What's I, I, different? We'll have to see. But I don't yeah, think I, mean, I don't think I don't think they went after in the they, they, people go after uh, Elizabeth Warren is in a policy way, not a personal way. That's right. And, that's right. and I that's think right. there's less a sort of affection for the Uncle Joe persona that exists that's built up as Obama's VP. Look, I actually think you know, confess your unpopular take that Joe Biden had a pretty good debate last night. I think he came out pretty clean, pretty clear, pretty sharp, had a couple stumbles along the way, as he is wont to do. But I, I actually thought he had some applause lines and he was really taking advantage of Donald Trump attacking him in what is leading to the impeachment inquiry. Again, this is the backdrop of everything. Right. As saying, look, that's because he's afraid of me. And that's a credible argument. I, I just keep pointing it. You know, if you look at our Iowa poll, when you ask Warren supporters, how certain are you of your vote choice? Are you Is your mind made up? Or are you going to consider someone else? 86%, I believe, or there and about, of Warren supporters say they could consider someone else. That's far more than the 70% of Bidens who say they could consider someone else. And that, That's I think— That's interesting. Is, where, are, where are the second choices? Like, who's everybody's second she, choice? Warren does seem to lead on second right, choice. Right. I remember you telling us that. Right. And that seems—and so basically you're trying to, you know, cut her off at the pass, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to ensure that, look, Biden's base seems to, for the most part, be immovable, at least nationally, you know, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31%, whatever exactly it is, versus Warren's support is sort of fresh, and you might be able to move it off of that. It's not as ingrained with her. She's sort of a newer figure. I don't think feelings for her are as ingrained. And look, you know, one other thing we saw, we've talked a little bit about this, the the role of the Biden backup, right? If Joe Biden implodes, who's there on the center left to take his place? I feel like we saw those auditions last night. We saw them hardcore last night. I think that was actually one of the major themes of the debate. Buttigieg obviously holding his own, going after Warren, talking about his industrial Midwest perspective. Fascinating debate with Tulsi Gabbard on foreign policy. Two millennial vets, totally opposite sides of the spectrum, where Buttigieg is basically talking about American responsibility in the world, and she's talking about how Assad is simply misunderstood. Uh, I think it's the last time we're going to see Tulsi Gabbard on the debate stage. You say that now. I say that now, but I can't fully account for uh, the impact of RT. Um, oh, my gosh, John. Keep but going. I once appeared on there, actually, multiple times with Larry King. Well, you you know, oh you're young gosh. and you've made mistakes. It's Moving right. on. Anyway, so point, point being... Um, But I thought Klobuchar actually had a really good debate in the same way. Uh, I totally appreciate that she used the phrase reality check. I like that very much. How much should you pay her for that? That's nothing. It was also a great line. Yes. I mean, when Elizabeth, it came when Elizabeth Warren said, other than me, essentially, you all want to allow billionaires to protect billionaires and their their tax cuts. And she said, reality check. That's not even the billionaire on the stage wants to wants to protect billionaires, which was a good moment. Totally, totally. Totally good line. And she really came in for a fight. And I think the centrist showed some spine last night. Yeah. I I mean, look, Amy Klobuchar needs three more qualifying polls 
to make the November debate stage. I think there's and, a, and soon and soon she yeah. needs them within the, the next month. Month. It's always, and she, yeah. most of those polls have pretty much that she's qualified, used to qualify. The debates have been in Iowa, which means there are even fewer of those coming out. So I think a real question for her coming out of this debate is: there, Was she able to move up her support even incrementally enough so that she can just stay alive? That's interesting. Yes, I. That's a very good point. Really quick, because we have to move on. What did you guys think of this new theme coming out of Cory Booker? This let's get along, stop tearing each other down on the stage. It's only going to hurt all of us. I I mean, it was clearly a theme. It happened. It was like the beginning of every single one of his answers. You know what? I loved it because I think it did two things. First of all, I think that's authentically who he is. He always has been kind of an inspirational, unifying guy. He's been most effective as mayor of Newark when he could ground that in real world responsibilities run the Senate, which tends to let him sort of rhetorically Mm -hmm. fly all over the place. But part of what everyone needs to be keeping in mind, it seems to me, is that the role the responsibility of the next president isn't simply to win the election. It's to begin reuniting the nation. And we lose track of that. That right, is but does that happen important. in the primary? It, it, it absolutely should be part of your primary pitch. Go back and look at, at you know Bill Clinton's arguments in 1992, for example, or Barack Obama's core pledge from the first moment he introduced himself to the American people, right? There are no red states. There are no blue states. There are the United States. It's important to have the presidency, and we forget this right now because of Donald Trump, be You know, you're never going to hit unanimity, but to be someone who at least believes there's more than unites us than divides us. And Mm -hmm. that's the thing he kept hitting. And I think that is both smart, it's differentiating, and it recognizes the responsibilities of the next president. And also a great audition to be a a VP VP. candidate. Anyway, so, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Ohio people. It's not only a state with a very bad football team. Oh, yeah, I'm talking which co- one? I'm talking college here. Yeah. Was, and pro. I'm just, I only care about college. It's voters have also predicted the last 14 presidential elections. That's up next. Ohio voters have backed the winning candidate in a presidential election 14 straight elections. And it's not just that. No Republican has won the White House without winning Ohio first. The last Democrat who won the White House while losing Ohio was John F. Kennedy. President Trump won there by eight points in 2016. I lay all of this out to say, yes, Ohio is a bellwether. But are there signs that status, that Ohio status is waning? Boys, I, I I think absolutely. Okay, well, I, I, let, lay it out. Jeff then, Lo- Goldblum means to say. say <laughs> well, Jeff Goldblum is a wonderful human being, yes, and I will and I will take any comparisons very strongly. Um, you mentioned it, Kate. Trump won the state by eight. He lost nationally by two. There was a ten point difference between the two of those. There were numerous states that would have come before Ohio that would have flipped to Clinton if the national vote had moved slightly more in her direction. You do not need to win Ohio to win the presidency if you're a Democrat. We saw that again in the 2018 midterm elections. We saw a Republican governor elected in the state of Ohio, Mike DeWine, in a race that wasn't all that close. I believe it was determined by about four points. Mm -hmm. We saw in the national House vote in Ohio a year in which Democrats won nationally, depending on whether you allocate the uh, races in which were unopposed candidates or not by between seven and nine points. The Republicans won that by about four points. So we saw that same trend hold from 2016 
to 2018, in which Ohio, despite being the quote-unquote bellwether of all bellwethers, was not one in 2016 in my mind and really was not one in 2018. John has a look that I can only mm-hmm. describe as the one that I think he it's gives to gas people. <laughs> what? That's terrible. Wow. <laughs> I, disdain. Oh, that? Yeah. So similar. Uh, yeah. No, look, man. I <laughs> A couple things about this. So first of all, Ohio, I think, is not the critical swing state in presidential elections, but it's a really interesting bellwether. Got to love the Buckeye state. Uh, Trump did run away with it. And, and there, in fact, there are a couple of traditional Midwestern swings that he was ahead the entire way in Ohio and Iowa. And for those prognosticators who sort of felt like... Like the election was a done deal for Hillary Clinton, probably should have focused more on those two states um, because I think it indicated a larger dynamic in in the upper Midwest. Um, but my, you know, my mother's from Youngstown, Ohio, so I know Northeast Ohio in particular. You know, can nerd out on Hamilton County returns as well. But w- while you're saying that, isn't it about the geography of Ohio, which is what makes it bellwethery to begin sure. well, with? Th- yeah, there are a couple of classic counties and, and districts that you really want to pay attention to. Hamilton County around around Cincinnati, traditionally Mahoning County uh, around Youngstown, uh, where my family's from. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's just there's a it's actually a, a really um, dense state, but it took it in the teeth with sort of the, the Great Recession and before that, deindustrialization. Um, so here's the question. Can Democrats put forward a candidate who can connect with the white working class, who can connect with folks who are part of the middle class and don't feel like they're elitist or condescending to them. That's why, and this is the key point about electability, that's why it's real. Quinnipiac poll from late July, Joe Biden beats Donald Trump there by eight points. Every other candidate in that poll trails Donald Trump. And I think that accounts to not just for name ID, but an ability to sort of connect with middle class and working class folks. And and so that's why, look, Ohio is not a lost cause. But if they go far left, you're going to have a real problem. Where is Trump's approval rating in Ohio right now? It, it depends on which poll you look at. It's probably hovering right at about 50, you know, 50-50 split. Okay. But that is actually good news for him in the sense that nationally he's running behind eight, nine, ten points among voters. So if the election were held today, I would not be surprised if Donald Trump lost the state of Ohio, but it would be one of those that would be sort of closer than a lot of the other traditional swing states. And just one other little, you know, sort of nugget for me from Ohio. If you were to look at sort of, you know, the suburban counties that you find in the other states that have been trending sort of democratic, I mean, you look at Lake County, which traditionally speaking had been a county, it's outside of Cuyahoga next to Cleveland, um, that had traditionally been sort of that swing county. Donald Trump won that county 55 to 40 percent last time. While the suburban counties nationwide sort of you've seen that run away from the Republican Party. That was not the case there. But that's why I think Ohio still is very interesting because you look at other parts, other suburbs. You look at the suburbs of Columbus, right? From there, Mm -hmm. you had Mitt Romney beat Obama 53-45 in 12. And then Clinton beat Trump there 50-45. The Westerville. Right. Exactly. I think the suburbs... Like it's been part of the conversation. I think that's an important part of the Ohio story, too. I think it is. If the Democrats are going to make a comeback in Ohio, it will likely be built on the suburbs of Columbus, which as someone, Mm -hmm. you know, who if you're not familiar with Ohio and I will admit that I am not an Ohio Ohioan born and raised, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you kind of think, oh, yeah, the city's in Ohio. There's Cleveland and there's Cincinnati. Um, But that's not the case. And Columbus is actually a very fast-growing area right now. It is the fastest-growing and youngest 
part of the state. Right. And that is where I think if Democrats are going to make inroads, it's going to have to be in Columbus. It's going to have to be in the middle of that state. So let's move on now from a bellwether to a crucial part of the voting electorate that is really getting more attention as it should in terms of presidential politics, the LGBTQ community. How do they vote? How big of a voting block is it? What does it mean for 2020? This comes on the heels of the historic CNN town hall um, that was focused solely on issues facing the LGBTQ community. Um, To begin, I mean, I think... How big is the LGBTQ vote? Uh, it, it's, a, it's about a 5% to a little bit more than 5% nationally. Um, in a Democratic primary, it's about 10% of the you know Democratic primary vote. It's not a small percentage. I'm not going to say it's, you know, it's not as big as African-Americans who right. make up 20% of the primary vote. But it is, in fact, a substantial block. And if one candidate were to win them overwhelmingly, uh, if you were to win the LGBTQ vote overwhelmingly, that could be very, very helpful to you. And it's very helpful. In a lot of you know big industrial states, you know New York, California, um, even Florida. Uh, so you know they're a voting block that is gaining power. And obviously, the fact that we held an LGBTQ forum gives you an understanding, based upon all the attendance that the Democratic candidates had, that they viewed as an important block too. Sure. And, and look, we've had a sea change uh, on, on American attitudes towards gay rights over the last 25 years. Um, what's fascinating to me, and Harry, you may know the answer to this, but I mean, you know, one of the things about Pete Buttigieg's candidacy is that here he's a pioneering candidate, openly gay, war vet, millennial, but he is not – he's campaigning as a candidate of generational change who happens to be gay. Now, is he seeing disproportionate support from the LBGT community? I mean what we do see is certainly fundraising-wise. Uh, yeah, yes, fundraising, right? That mm-hmm. I think is where you certainly do see it You know, among donors in that community in the major cities in New York, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco. But from, but from the beginning when I spoke to him very early on, he made very clear he was not running mm-hmm. to be a history-making candidate. He was running – I mean and that's how he – that's how he won in South Bend, Indiana, right. was saying and – he's, and he says it all the time, which is if I'm filling in the potholes or I'm not filling in the potholes, it doesn't matter who I go, go home to at night. Yeah. What matters is what I do for you. Yeah. And that's how he's trying to run his candidacy too, which I think yeah. is – it shows that generational change, that it doesn't have to be a statement maker. And, and, and the gains are asymmetric. I mean I think 44 percent of, Amer- uh, of, of Republicans support marriage equality um, compared to like you know, 75, 80. 83% of voters under 30. So there, there are changes. What's interesting, though, is Harry's pointed out, too, trans rights are still highly controversial. It's one of the reasons you see them deployed mm-hmm. as sort of a divisive tactic in a lot of key races in states like, for example, North Carolina, yeah, and I think, which blew up in their face. I think that's a rather important point, John, and that is, you know, we sort of have this acronym LGBTQ, but the LGB in the United States has been more accepted than the T part of that acronym has. Transgender rights have not been necessarily seen as sort of pioneering for the American public. So, you know, Gallup asked this question, essentially, do you believe uh, transgender Americans should use uh, the public restroom for the gender assigned to them at birth or what they believe is their gender identity or say is their gender identity? And what you see is 51 percent of Americans say that uh, transgender Americans should use a public bathroom for the gender assigned to them at birth versus just 44 percent who say they should be able to use the one that is their gender identity. That to me is a real sign mm-hmm. that although there has been a lot of movement you know, in gay rights over the past 15, 20 years, there's still a lot of movement to be had for transgender rights. And it's not just that, you know, 41 percent of all voters said they would be less excited to vote for a presidential nominee if they 
they were transgender, which was the highest number who said they would be less excited. Normally, you see more excited, but here a plurality say less excited. And finally, per a CBS News poll, 56% of Americans say that transgender Americans face a lot of discrimination. Uh, That was by far the highest for any group that CBS News tested. That is something very important to point out. Um, Okay, so before we go... We have to do a quick update. Yes. If we must, because I love updates. Um, the jungle primary in the Deep South. In the Big Easy. Oh, the that Big too. Easy jungle in Louisiana. Primary. So we talked about this. We discussed this in detail. And essentially, the outcome is stand by. Stand by. We'll have a runoff <laughs> in a month or so down in Louisiana. So, you know, you had the jungle primary. All the Democrats ran against all the Republicans, uh, the major Democrat being the governor there, John Bell Edwards. He won a little less than 47 percent of the vote. Of course, he needed 50 percent plus one of the vote in order to win outright. Eddie Rispone, the uh, is going to be the GOP nominee. He beat Ralph Abraham or got more votes than he did. Now, here's some key little nuggets for you. The GOP candidates totaled together about 52% of the vote. If you had the same electorate and all of Abraham's votes went to Rispone, then he'd be the next governor Bell Edwards would lose. But, of course, this, I think, is important. Polling shows, in fact, in a one-on-one that Bell Edwards would beat Rispone. And more than that, here's a, a, bit of, a little bit more of good news for him. On average, Democratic candidates in Louisiana tend to do better in the runoffs than they do in the jungle primary themselves. They tend to pick up votes. That has been the case for uh, major jungle primaries, two runoffs this decade. We'll have to see if that trend holds. But right now, I would say that we are looking for a very, very exciting month of campaigning down in the Big Easy where you are my sunshine. Notably, though, Trump's, uh, Trump showing up seemed to have boosted Republican mm-hmm. gains. And Responde begins the general election campaign or the runoff campaign by saying, I love Donald Trump, which is not typically language you hear in American politics. I love the forecast fast. <laughs> well, that, that's that something way. you hear more often yes, in America. Yes, obviously. Much I more think often. my mommy says it all the time. And it gets awkward again. <laughs> um, that does it for us today. One more quick note. We want to let you know um, about a new daily podcast from our CNN colleagues about the impeachment inquiry. It's called the Daily DC Impeachment Watch, and it offers all of the latest developments on the investigation as it changes so much and so fast. So keep an eye out for that because you can find it wherever you get your podcasts and it's so hard to keep track of it. I highly recommend it. If you like this episode of the Forecast Fest, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or again, your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a comment. It helps new listeners find the show. And until then, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Avlon. Harry, honestly. Sorry, sorry, sorry. At Forecaster Enton, uh, you know how to spell that now. He literally does it just to upset us. No, I don't. (laughs) I don't do it just to upset He's doodling. He's doodling on his paper. I think he made a donut earlier. Uh, There's numbers in that donut. Uh, I I will say I did needle John before you came in here with some Yankee highlights from Tuesday. That's fine. Needle all the way. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And a special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, and David Toledo. We'll see you back here next time on the Forecast Fest. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.